Hello, welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. My name is David Busis, and on today's episode, you'll be hearing a webinar with Greg Canada, the Assistant Dean of Admissions at Indiana University Bloomington's Maurer School of Law. Greg begins by telling us more about his school, and then I ask him questions about his admissions process and admissions in general. We'll talk about recommenders, some common mistakes, how prospective students can increase their chances by visiting, and a lot more. So without further ado, please enjoy the webinar. Welcome, everyone. If you don't know me, I'm David. I'm a partner at Seven Sage, and I am so pleased to host Greg Canada, the Assistant Dean of Admissions at Indiana University Bloomington's Moorer School of Law. I'm going to let our own Elizabeth Cavallari introduce Greg from offstage. Well, welcome everyone. We're so happy to have you here um, and welcome Dean Canada. Um, Greg Canada has devoted his entire professional career serving higher education. He has worked in various student service positions um, as a graduate student and then spent almost 20 years in undergraduate, graduate and law school admissions. Beyond his current responsibilities as the Assistant Dean of Admissions um, at Indiana Law, um, Dean Canada has been actively involved with the Law School Admissions Council, the Hispanic Scholarship Fund, the Council on Legal Education Opportunity, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Millennium Scholarship Program. Prior to joining Indiana Law in 2015, he worked as the Assistant Dean of Admissions at UC Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco, California. Um, Dean Canada um, earned a Bachelor of Arts in History and Philosophy from Virginia Wesleyan College, a Master of Arts in Philosophy from Boston College, and a Graduate Certificate in Higher Education Administration from Harvard University. I've had the pleasure of serving with Dean Canada on a committee for the Law School Admissions Council and spending time with him on the road while recruiting law school applicants. He is a strong student advocate and a valued professional of the Law School Admissions community. I'm thrilled that he can join us tonight. Um, welcome, Dean Canada. Uh, thank you very much for those warm words. And thank you, David, for having me on this webinar. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm so glad that you could join us. Greg, I was hoping that you could begin by telling us more about uh, Indiana Bloomington School of Law. Well, I'd be happy to do so. I do realize that when I, I do these kind of discussions that a lot of prospective students want to hear more about my view about the application process and about the value of the LCT. So I will recognize from the outset that uh, much of what I have to say probably is going to gloss over them. Uh, and I do encourage everyone to take time to go visit the website. Uh, there's a lot of information there. We even have an online uh, view book that goes into a great deal, uh, great deal of detail about the law school. So uh, I preface what I have to say today with Please take time to look uh, look at the law school's website, and please come and visit us. Uh, one thing uh, people will tell you time and again is they get blown away by whenever they come to Bloomington. I think in many ways it defies what they thought they were going to see when they got to the law school. I was no different when I visited the law school the first time. Um, you know, I was first of all struck by the beauty of the campus. Uh, uh, it is one of the most beautiful um, college campuses you'll find across the country. Uh, it inspires people to really, uh, to really ex exercise their intellect and their imagination. Is this a place that really calls for the best of us, um, uh, both intellectually but also spiritually? Uh, about the law school, just some things. As a matter of fact, you know, things I thought were pretty impressive when I was learning about Maurer. Uh, first of all, it's the ninth oldest law school in the nation. I think that many people find that a bit surprising uh, that a school in the Midwest is as old as many folks of the schools that you'll find on the East Coast. Uh, we're the fifth oldest public law school and the first law school uh, west of Appalachian. So we've been around for over 175 years. And as such, we've graduated 
uh, leaders of uh, the bar, uh, the bench, uh, the private sector, and the government, not only within the state of Indiana, but throughout the country. Um, if you go through the list of alumni, uh, notable alumni, you'll find uh, first governors of states, you know, first uh, senators, um, first attorney generals, first Supreme Court, uh, state Supreme Court justices, um, uh, actually uh, people who graduate from law school are really were pioneers for many of the uh, uh, communities that they were working or eventually uh, being part of in the mid-1800s and later on. If you go through the list, you'll see that uh, there are, our alumni do incredible things, not only within the state of Indiana, but as I mentioned, throughout the country. One thing I found in particular uh, was 65% of our students uh, will leave Indiana each year to take on jobs in other states. Uh, that blew me away. Um, I also was really blown away by the fact that every year about 70% of our students come from out of state. Uh, if anything, it reflects our tremendous reach. Uh, I, it was not something that I was uh, aware of until I actually got to the law school. Uh, the law school has, been, ha has had an incredible impact, not only in terms of the alumni who have graduated the law school, but also what the faculty are doing um, in terms of just the citations uh, that our faculty receive. I think they're the, in the top 10 of all law school faculty in terms of the number of downloads that they are registered through the social science network. I think that is quite telling about the power uh, of, of what the scholarship of the law school is. Part of the reason why law school is currently a top 15 public law school, uh, it really does hang a lot uh, on uh, the great uh, academic work that comes into the law school. Uh, we're also known for our programs in tax. We are nationally, internationally known, we're nationally ranked in tax, international law, IT, uh, environmental law. Um, and the list, you kind of get the idea that this is a pretty special place in terms of just the overall prestige. But what I was really impressed with the most when I went to visit the law school and when took on the job and I'll kind of end with my talk about IU uh, here is I, when I was sitting around and meeting the students, I couldn't believe how friendly everyone was. I'm going, this is one of the best public law schools in the nation. I was, you would think, you know, given its prestige and given the fact that it's a law school, uh, that the students would be, you know, competitive, uh, a little edgy, you know, what you typically would find in most law schools. And I was kind of really impressed by just how affable the students were. And so I've spent the past four years trying to understand really what, it, why are the students as friendly as they are? Why are they not cutthroat? And why are they kind of, you know, actually uh, really supportive and collegial in the way that they are? But I thought maybe perhaps it was the Midwest. This is what law schools are like, and this is what people are like in the Midwest. But I'd find out some students who'd gone to visit other law schools, they'd come to visit Mauer, and they'd tell me, well, that school in the Midwest wasn't very friendly. So I was like, okay, well, maybe that's not a sufficient explanation as to why the school is as friendly you know, as it is. And I realized maybe it has something to do with Bloomington. And I was thinking about my experience, my time in San Francisco, and I was thinking about the experiences of what my students were like outside the classroom. And I thought about the long commutes that many of them had, or the very expensive rent. And I started to see that kind of influence what was going on in the classroom. Students just tend to be a little more edgy, a little more stressful. And then you add that on top of a stressful experience in the first year, and it doesn't always come out um, in, in the best of ways. What I found with Bloomington is most of our students, first of all, it's, it's a college town, so rent and the cost of living is very, uh, quite, it's quite affordable. Um, say our students live like law students while they're in law school, so they can live like lawyers once they graduate and, and, and practicing law. Um, they're not burdened by the huge amount of debt that a lot of students, especially students who go to schools in urban environments, will accrue. Um, 
So I saw that you didn't have that stress of a very expensive cost of the cost of living uh, on the shoulders. I also noticed that, you know, students lived in walking distance and that meant a lot. You know, they weren't rushing in the morning to find parking, to be the first ones at the school. Uh, they didn't have to look and see whether or not the traffic was going to be bad that day or whether or not mass transit was breaking down. The students could walk to class and then if they needed a four hour break, they could walk back to their, to their apartment or their, their house and, uh, and take a break and then come back. And it really, it, it, it's amazing what, how, how much stress is taken off your shoulder when you're not worried about those little things that over time can really build up. And so I really got a sense that Bloomington as a, as, as a place for this law school is partly uh, responsible for this student body being collegial. Um, people in Bloomington are also just very friendly, and I would encourage anyone to come and see for themselves. People really do go out of their way um, to help you if you're lost. Um, it, you know, even I, I, the funny thing is that a great example is in California, we call it the California Roll, where two people come into a stop sign. Uh, you know, is basically you're going to race this person that gets through the stop sign just so you can get to another stop sign. You know, I find my time in Bloomington being very much like people actually will go out of the way to tell them, no, you go, you go, you, I'll let you go. And it's just those kind of courtesies that I think speak a lot about Bloomington uh, and why our students are as friendly as they are. But I think the other thing, and this will kind of something I'll talk about when we talk about the application process, and I'll end here, is that our students are really drawn to the school because they don't want an environment that is uber competitive. They don't think that law school has to be cutthroat. They don't have to come. They, these students will come to the law school seeing their successes being intimately connected to the success of their classmates. You know, and I think what can happen sometimes in some environments, students, and it's no fault of their own, are kind of encouraged to see their success in law school being threatened by the success of their others. So if they do better, then somehow I'm going to be doing worse. And that kind of zero-sum notion of success is something that we try our best to uh, not be part of the student experience. So you couple that with students who really want to be supportive and really see themselves as being there for others. Um, all coming to play, a great student body that I will tell you, um, it really makes it an absolute joy to be part of that. Um, I couldn't be happier being at Mauer and, and working with the students on, on, on a daily basis. So. That's that, and if there are more questions about IU, I'll be uh, happy to answer them. Thanks, Greg. That is a really great overview. Um, makes me want to visit Bloomington on my next vacation. Uh, so I'm looking at your um, your law school's page, and there's a section that says how we review applications, and that's what I want to ask you. But I'm hoping that you can get give us some inside knowledge or just get a little more wonky or just mechanical. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what actually happens to an application after someone hits submit? Where does it go? How does it get dispatched to readers, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, there's a mechanical element uh, to it, without a doubt, because there is a desire by any admissions office, including Maurer, uh, to get decisions out as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, everything's done electronically. We live in a day of, of instant gratification, online, stats checker. So we really want to reduce anxiety uh, as much as possible by creating a nipple process by which we can review applications. One way we do this is we do work up an index and an index is a score that brings together a GPA and an LSAT. And based upon a regression analysis, will give us kind of predictive ability, you know, assessment about first year success. We, you know, we use this as a way uh, for, you know, for us to determine success, but we also look at 
uh, divvying up the emissions file based upon those index scores. So for example, uh, students with very high index scores will be called presumptive admits. Just based upon the numbers alone, there's a great deal of likelihood this person will admit. That, uh, those applications will be read fairly quickly to uh, a professional member of the office. Um, then there are the kind, of, the kind of harder cases. Those are cases the students whose academic indicators might be slightly below the median of what we typically would enroll, or students who have character questions, or students whose numbers after review uh, they happen to be low academic indicators. They tend to be tough cases. We'll move those to a committee, and those that committee at Mauer is comprised of a of a faculty as well as uh, as well as students. And now, for the students whose academic indicators are pretty low, they'll also be read by someone in the admissions office. And again, if their numbers uh, do not reflect their true potential, they'll be kicked up. So it is a pretty quick process, and typically we're getting decisions out. You know, once we get going in middle of November, we're getting decisions out roughly within one month of when we receive the application. Greg, to the extent that you can answer this, how important are those non-numerical factors? And I suppose this is the, you know, the the category of people who are not presumptive admits. I, I guess how big is that bucket, if you can give us any sense? And um, yeah, how are you making decisions within that tranche? Yeah. Well, and I, th I think it's very important in terms of how I slice and dice the applicant pool for the purposes of file review, maybe without making this important comment, maybe a bit misleading. When it comes to numbers, it's very important to know, with the exception of the outliers, I mean, we're talking about 184.0 or, you know, on the other end, uh, 135 and a 2.0, rarely do numbers determine a decision, okay? Uh, if anything, numbers orientate the evaluation. All right. So if they have high indicators, it's our responsibility to review the application and make sure there are no red flags or even question whether or not there's a question to match. You know, we ask for students. We, you know, we, we sometimes will identify students who we might see as being uh, cutthroat or, you know, are just not a fit for us. Uh, those are the non, uh, those are the non cognitive or the soft factors that sometimes do make their way into the application. We see, for example, the faculty member mentions that the student over and over uh, tends to be overbearing her her presentation, uh, you know, doesn't play well in the sandbox. If they have good numbers, that's not going to, you know, we will raise, we will raise the flag. In this case, we will not, you know, we may waitlist the person. Uh, yeah, you know, again, with a 130 and a 2.0, yeah, for the most part, we don't have to spend too much time. Your reading application know that while, you know, this person may become a lawyer and do something good with him or herself in the law school, they're not going to find a place at Mauer uh, during that first year. So then you have within that middle um, students who uh, in many ways look a lot alike. You know, academically speaking, applicants tend to be self-selective in terms of where they've had a law school. They'll look on LCC, they'll see what the chances of getting in, uh, they'll see if they have a 162 and a 370, they'll see schools and say, wow, if I look at Mauer, I have a good chance of getting in. So we find every year the median GPA in LSAT of uh, the applicant pool tends to be quite the same. So given the fact that the numbers, for the most part, they can be somewhat similar, we're having to look at a lot of those non-quantifiable factors, those soft features that we think are important because once we come, we get to the realization that these students will be successful academically at the fall school, then the question will be, will they be a good fit? As I mentioned earlier, we don't just simply try to recruit good students, we want good classmates. We want people uh, who have a sense of purpose, people who, honestly, I feel, who feel like they were meant to go to law school, not that they were simply wanting to go, but these are very important. 
Um, and this is how we're able to separate and really make fine distinctions between very qualified applicants who have much, very, very much the same numbers in the, in the pool. Greg, how can you uh, make a determination about whether someone's going to be a good classmate or just a good citizen of Bloomington? Um, you know, people can say it. They can say, I am collaborative. Uh, I like to praise other people. But I don't know. How do you know if that's true? Yeah, I, you know, David, I think you hit on something that's always important to understand about the application process. It's not perfect. You know, there are many times where, you know, an interview might be a very good thing. And even then, that may not be a good idea because maybe on that, you just will carry that morning when you're having an interview and, you know, you didn't really care what the person had to say or perhaps you've heard it so many times, you just kind of blow, you kind of blew it off. You know, it is something that we cannot rely on in terms of every, it's not a box that we must check with every application. Sometimes we have nothing to get from their personal applica- their application that will speak to that. But when it does, it stands out in a big way. Oftentimes, students are actually mentioning their time of visiting law school. Something they highlighted about the school, much of it is about the, um, the collegiality, the student support, and what they want in the law school that really kind of helps us. Like, yes, they, they, uh, they, they resonate uh, with, you know, the values the law school, you know, um, puts forth as a distinctive uh, feature of, of, of itself. So your point is well taken that it's not something that you can rely on, but that's true of the application process itself. You know, how do you know for certain that a high LSAT's going to do this? You know, you just try your best to put it together. Um, and it's not just one thing. It's usually how things, how, how things cohere. You start, it's like, you know, one's character is not defined by one thing. It's usually a pattern that you try to identify and review in the file. And to the extent that you can identify a pattern of someone who is going to be um, supportive of one another. You know, someone who, for example, has been a, a, an athlete, we find that athletes tend to be, they have a sense that, wow, a sense of, uh, of success that uh, does resonate with this collective notion of success that we try to promote amongst our students. Not something that we're, you know, trying to create a, an arena where they're basically trying to accumulate the spoils of war. Um, you want students who also want to feel like the better that you do, the better I do. And that's something that really can come out in many ways. Their, their personal statement, what the recommenders have to say. But again, if they don't have it in their application and there are all these other great things about them, but we're not really sure, they most likely will still be given a place in the law. We're not that discriminant. And, and, um, and there are times that people do, as you pointed out, they, they pull up, so, you know, they're, they're like, wow, you look like you're really good on paper. And then we get to meet you and, you know, you're, you're kind of a, a wallflower and you're not even someone who um, participates much in the student life. Then you find these other people who during the application process can be very quick, very dry, and yet they be they end up being a very uh, lively presence at the law school. So it's not perfect. We recognize that. Um, okay, so speaking of trying to figure out what someone's like based on what they're showing you in their application, I wonder if you can cast your mind back over some of the very memorable applications and specifically personal statements that you've read and maybe synthesize some of the qualities that made them stand out for you. You know, there, there, was, there are memorable stories. You think about people who are really putting a pickle and the personal statement is describing how they got out of that pickle. Uh, uh, I've read one about being on a plane that's been hijacked and his mother had been killed on the plane and what he had to do, get off the plane. And, that you know, things like that really stay with you. Um, 
you know, that doesn't happen very often, but something like that definitely stays in. But the theme is very much the same. Um, you know, what happens when you're basically up the river without, 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 uh, you know, a paddle. Um, we've had students talk about in the personal statement, um, having their passport and all their money stolen on a train while they're, while they were traveling abroad and what they did to, to get back home. Um, and in doing so, you really brought, you bring me into the story. You bring me into wanting to know more about what you did to figure it out. And of course, at the end, there was resolution. And in the process, you showed us that you were incredibly creative. You're a problem solver and so forth. So those tend to be pretty impressive. Um, you know, then you also find students who've experienced incredible injustice in their life. Um, whether it be, you know, circumstantial injustice, you know, they lived in impoverished neighborhoods um, and they had to fight their way through and navigate the system in order for them to uh, reach this point in their life. And that tells us a lot about their character, their resolve. If anything, it tells us a lot about their heart. And that's something I always look for when I can find it is one's heart, because I think there's an incredible emphasis or overemphasis when it comes to the legal profession about, about the cerebral, the neck up. Uh, good lawyers need not just the neck and, you know, the intellectual virtues, but they, you need heart. You need determined, you know, uh, courage, motivation, tenacity. These are qualities that we know are going to lead to your success in law school as well as the practice of law. Um, so you look for people who, uh, despite their circumstances, they willed things to be, you know, they weren't simply shaped by their environment. They shaped their environment sort of thing. You know, those tend to be very powerful. Um, I also, what I also like, and this is the last point about, you know, what I like seeing in personal statements is analogical reasoning, you know, ability to use analogies, time kind of experiences in a life that on the surface seem to be very different, but yet how they were able to bring it together because they found some underlying theme in their life. And so that kind of thinking, I think also, um, is very, um, you know, again, an example would be, you know, their life growing up playing soccer and what they learned about soccer and what their experience, at least a limited experience working in law firm has taught them and just bringing those life experiences together. Um, that tells me that you're looking, the applicants are kind of looking at the world with the eyes of their eyes, if you will. And they're listening to the world with the ears of ears. And they're going to have incredible perspective when it comes to conversations in class. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. What about the other side? Can you tell us some things that you see that, um, you know, make you much more reluctant to admit a student other than typos or addressing the wrong law school? Yeah. Um, you know, there are times, in fact, I was just recently reading an application of students whose grade trend was going down. And um, uh, one bit of advice I have for anyone who's watching this, um, this is your first case. You know, if, if you think of this as your first case, and uh, you're you're trying to be admitted to law school, and there's a decline, you know, in your in your grades during during your four years in college. You would imagine that you would want to explain that. <laughs> and I only bring this up because I've just recently read an application. The students started off very well, um, and it, it kind of bucks the trend of typically seeing students who start off very you know and going high. Um, but you know, there what you know something that can sometimes give us pause. And I think this is probably, you know, in and of itself, there's really one thing that will say this is going to get you out. Unless, of course, again, those outliers, so 130 and the 2.0 GPA, yeah, um, you know, or that you've had, you know, four felony convictions. There are things that definitely are going to, you know, it's basically DOA when it comes to the application. Um, but then there are times when you're really having to 
split hairs between very qualified applicants on paper. The numbers look very much the same. Sometimes I am given pause when I don't feel that the reason that there's a real sense of purpose behind their application. Why law school? And it's not that we're saying you must give us every single reason, but when you give us no indication whatsoever because your personal statement is nothing more than a, a rambling of, you know, your view about politics or the world, it, it, it leaves us wondering, you know, why, you know, what, you know, have you thought about why you want to become an attorney or why you want to go to law school? Um, and if you leave us leave with those questions with the kind of the jury, you'll give us pause. We may not deny you, but we'll definitely put you on ice. Um, and so sometimes a lack of a sense of purpose or self-knowledge, a uh, lack of self-knowledge, uh, tone deafness, if you will, um, could be a reason for us to pause. Um, you know, but the usual suspects, you know, bad grades, LSAT, you know, a really questionable LSAT, poor letters of recommendation, sometimes uh, that sometimes will give us pause. Rarely will will deny someone because of a bad recommendation. I mean, a recommendation that's usually they're not really bad, rare, but sometimes we have. We've seen a student uh, have a professor send in a letter of recommendation, and, and that uh, recommender told us that the student plagiarized in her, in her class, and we had no idea. And the student didn't even disclose us in character and fitness questions so sometimes. But it's, it's, you know, it's just sometimes there's a question of fit. There's a question of, is this really person? Is this person going to law school with it for any compelling reason? And if you leave us questioning that, I think, you're not going to be presenting the strongest case. Speaking of recommendations, what advice would you give or what advice could a student talking to a potential recommender give to, uh, you know, ensure that they'll get a really compelling and also helpful for you recommendation? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is ask whether or not you can get a good recommendation, not just any recommendation, but can you give me a good recommendation? And my, my thought is if you can read body language, if you're asking the professor, uh, in, in her presence, I think that could be telling. But if you can, if the professor says, yes, I would like to do that, one thing I, I would recommend is you may bring, sit down with the professor at some point, make an appointment, talk to the professor as the reasons why you want to go to law school. Chances are she already knows. Um, you know, bring a paper, just, you know, especially if you've been out of school for two years, go back to the school or send an email to the professor, send a resume as well as a paper you may have written for the professor to jog her memory so she could be more illustrative about what your what her experience of was of you in the class was. I mean it's easy for a professor to say, well yeah, I went back and you know the student got an A in my class and you know, but we would like to see something that we could be able to glean other than what we could see on the transcript. Um, so familiarity and objectivity are uh, I think very important um, attributes of a strong letter of recommendation. If the person doesn't really know you, for example, they got the lieutenant governor of the state of Indiana to write the letter of recommendation because you happen to be, um, because he, his best friend, you happen to be his best friend's daughter, you know, that's, you're, you're really uh, ruining a chance for us to get to know a little bit more about what you might be able to bring into the classroom, but also how we think you might do in a rigorous academic setting. So, you know, I, I think, you know, you want to stay away from that. So if they don't really know you, uh, you know, stay away from those people. Um, objectivity comes into issues. Well, you know, you know, for example, I, I'll bring this up. Uh, we have a professor who wrote a letter, wrote a letter of recommendation for a student um, applying to law school. And um, the, the professor has never taught the student. 
Um, this, this professor knows the student um, as a family member. And, you know, while it was a very moving uh, letter of recommendation, we have to question the objectivity. Um, could this person really, uh, this person's never been in a position where he's been able to really objectively assess the student in any environment, whether it's a professional environment or an academic environment. So if you don't have that, then really we don't get to rely on that by recommendation in the way that we ought to in reviewing the file. You know, speaking of obje- objectivity, is a recommendation more credible to you when it has some acknowledgement of a student's weakness? Or is it, does it just make you less inclined to accept the student? Well, I think I've seen great recommendations that actually start off with a student's weakness and then go on to explain how the student overcame that weakness. Um, I see some of those are the best of recommendations. Uh, a lot of times students say, I'm going to go to the professor, I got the easiest or the best grade. Well, that might be a good avenue depending on the class. You might just be a real rock star in astrophysics. But other professors who might be able to tell us a little about you are the ones that you had a struggle at first and then you really found your groove. Because she's going to go at length talking about, well, you know, a lot of things that we would love to see in our students. Uh, resiliency, resolve when it comes to the hardship that they're going to experience in their first year and so forth. Um, so, again, when it comes to those, and these are talking, well, this is an academic level recommendation. This professor is talking a lot of those virtues of the heart that we're looking for when reviewing files. Um, so, I mean, of course, if you did poorly in the class all throughout the semester, well, if you turn that letter recommendation, recommendation in, it's going to be a reflection. I don't, I, I don't imagine it's going to be a reflection of good judgment. And that's something always lurking in the background of an application. You need to be exercising good judgment when you turn your application in, what you decide to write about, who your references are going to be, uh, where you decide to apply to law school, what you decide to close, your character sentence. These are all reflections of judgment. And if you did someone who basically says, you know, well, the student barely made an impression on me, um, got C's and so forth, you know, and yeah, definitely, you know, in a good case, you might get put on ice. In a bad case, you might just be told, you know what, I just don't think this is the type of student we want here at the law school. Got it. Okay, just have a couple more questions before I turn it over to the group. One, can a student increase her chances by demonstrating her interest, visiting the law school, calling the law school, going to an event, shaking your hand, anything like that? Uh, you know, I, I think it depends on the school. I think for Maurer, yes. Um, you know, I will speak for my, my colleagues, maybe at Yale and Stanford, probably no. Uh, uh, you know, but, you know, we because we're in Bloomington, um, you know, it takes a while for many people to come visit the school. They're taking the time. Um, they do make impressions, you know. I always tell students when you go to visit law school, find out what law school, really see whether or not you can envision yourself being here. And impressions do matter. Uh, you know, they, you know, we, again, come looking for some of those soft qualities that we might not be able to ascertain by looking at the application. Do get written down about students when they come to visit the school. Um, and knowing that this is going to be a place that's going to put wind in their sails, you know, because Bloomington is not for everybody. Uh, but you find the students who are really eager, very excited about studying the law there, you know, that can, you know, make a difference in some cases. Um, but in many other cases, it doesn't, you know, simply, you know, they just, uh, we, are, we have too strong of a pool or, you know, there might not be things that line up. And, you know, uh, you know, we do take note of how, you, how people do behave once they're at the school. But when people do make a compelling reason about why they would love to go to your law school, um, and it's done in a way that's authentic. It's not my writing, basically, that they copied off the website and put onto the, onto the uh, 
onto their application. That can definitely stay in our mind when we're making a decision, A, whether or not to admit, but also who we decide we may want to turn to when it comes to the wait list. Um, we sometimes are in a position where we need to bring students on board um, and we really want to finalize our classes with students who are going to add a lot to the class because they really want to be there. That makes sense. Here's my last question. What is merit-based financial aid based on? Is it only the LSAT score or is it all the soft factors? And what can a student do to maximize this financial aid um, as he submits his application? Well, you know, I, I think schools will approach this differently. Some schools also have a need-based component uh, to their financial aid. You know, when I was at Hastings, uh, it was a very large amount of money I was offered to need-based, not much towards merit. Uh, that's not the case at Mauer. It is pri- primarily merit-based. I shouldn't say merit-based. It's, it's primarily credential-based, and I think it's an important distinction to make. Um, I think merit is kind of reflective of the length or the distance you had to travel to get to where you ended up, not necessarily where you ended up. You know, so, um, you know, if you've been given a fairly privileged, cushy life and you've been given all the resources early on, there's an expectation that you have done better academically, especially on board scores and students who may not have had that access early on. So separating the two, we are credential based. Uh, The the way it works at Mauer is um, every year, and this is true for a lot of law schools, you, the law school wants to maintain, if not improve, their academic meetings for the purposes of U.S. News. I must say for all law schools, because some law schools, especially below, below the 100 or so, they just don't want to drop to the 200. You know, they're not, you know. But then you get to a balanced school, typically in the top 40, maybe the top 50, where, you know, they're trying to push the incoming metrics to try to ever, to you know, move up the, the, the great chain of being uh, we call the U.S. News. Uh, in that case there, thinking how law schools like now, what they're going to do in the operating, they're going to look at students who have academic indicators or at or below their, you know, um, you know, last year's medians, if they want to preserve their medians and say, well, we make offer financial aid based on a certain amount of financial aid. If you have this LSAT, a median LSAT, um, if you have this, uh, a median GPA or how you make it a full tuition scholarship, then you slides a little bit. Let's so say you have the same, you know, say for 162, and that happens to be the median LSAT for now this past year. Uh, most likely what we have this year kind as well. But let's say your meeting, your GPA is below the meeting, then you'll get a lesser scholarship. But let's say your GPA is higher, but your LSAT is below the meeting, well, you'll get a different scholarship. So that's how we kind of play it out. Um, now, do we look at the soft factors? We do. Uh, for example, two things that immediately are, are, other, are non, uh, are two factors that, not soft factors, are other factors that come to mind. We think about diversity. Um, you know, in order to recruit students, um, to the law school, we will need to consider our chance of landing that student based upon historical precedent. We find that, you know, just simply going after certain groups with, you know, academic indicators, you know, we're not going to recruit a diverse class, something that we're looking for. So we realize that, you know, number, you know, in this case here, uh, what they may add to the class, their, their diversity. I know we're not just talking about um, ethnic or racial diversity. It could be other things, too what they studied, where they went to school, their age, their professional background. We're like, wow, these are students who are not going to get a school unless we offer them aid that goes beyond what their numbers alone would suggest. And so there's some wiggle room that I'm given to offer a little bit more aid to those folks. Uh, we also think, for example, students who've done, um, who studied the sciences, who want to go into IP, particular strength of malware. Um, we can't simply go, well, they have to have the same CPA. No, we know that if we worked on that kind of model, we would never have any IT students at the law school, um, no, at least no students who studied the sciences. So 
there is a bit of leeway that we have to uh, give based upon a student's background. That's, that's so helpful. Thank you so much. I'd love to open it up to all of the attendees. So if you have a question for Dean Canada, go ahead and raise your hand. We like to call on people. You can also type your question out and um, we'll take some from the question box, but we'll probably go first to people who are raising their hand just so you get a chance to interact with us. So Mark, I just um, unmuted you and you can ask your question. Awesome. Um, well, thank you guys for hosting this. We really appreciate it. My question is, I am a military veteran. Do law schools officially give preference to military veterans? Thank you so much. Do they give preference to military? I can't say that they do. However, let me tell you why I, and I imagine many of my colleagues find people who've served this country as um, in the military, why we find their applications very attractive. Um, as I met, first of all, I will tell you, many times prospective students think that the best recommend, recommendations come from academic uh, uh, recommenders. That's not the truth. I'll tell you, Mark, the best recommendations I've ever come across have come from the military. And they speak a lot about character. I mean, there's so much in the application that we can learn about you academically, your transcripts, your LSAT, and so forth. But they talk a lot about character and that what gets revealed in these letter recommendations are exactly the kind of qualities that we want in our student body. And we also think will be uh, a great example for other students. Um, your commitment to service. I mean, the legal profession is a service profession. You're here to give a voice to other people's causes. Um, to, you have, uh, you know, years of, of service to this country. Um, and that speaks, I think, to what we look for in students. We don't simply want people who are intelligent. We we want people who, again, have that virtue of the heart of, you know, having the courage, uh, the fortitude, the motivation, the discipline, uh, and the care for others um, that oftentimes comes out from those who, who've served our country. Um, you know, and I, I'll say the other thing, Mark, the last thing about being in the military, my experience with those who've been in the service is um, there's a certain gravitas. There's a certain way that they hold themselves that people pick up. And I think that really does bode well for them when it comes to not only getting employment, but being, being great attorneys. Um, uh, people, uh, clients want to, you know, have confidence in their, in their attorney. And the way that the folks who, at least the ones I've worked with and over my years in law school missions, they just have a certain confidence in the ways that they, they hold themselves that I think resonates with, uh, with future clients. Anna, thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you for your service. Okay, if anyone else wants to raise their hand, go ahead. In the meantime, I'm going to read a question for Dean Canada. So Gloria asks, if I'm reapplying to law school, is it recommended that I revise or update my personal statements and addenda? How much of it should be updated? Any tips? Well, you know, here's the one thing. If you apply to Mauer, we will see both. We'll see your application from the pre we'll see your personal statement from the previous year. Um, we keep that on file. We'll know that you're a reapplicant. And so um, I'll tell you, if you did get into law school and, uh, you know, you basically submit the same application, there's that whole uh, saying by Einstein, that question of madness, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results each time. Um, so my recommendation is that, you know, I, especially if you're reapplying to the same school, because we will see that you were denied. 
or let's say, or maybe perhaps you were weightlifting. We would like to know what you've been doing since then. Um, and so I do recommend refreshing your application. It doesn't mean transforming and redoing everything. Um, your reasons for law, going to law school may not have changed much, but I do think, you know, maybe tweaking the personal statement and also updating the letters of recommendations. I know this sounds weird, but sometimes we see letters of recommendations from students that spend three years. They apply to law school and they skipped out a couple of years and then they just resubmitted their same application. You know, it doesn't really help. Uh, I'm not saying you can get denied. Let's say that you decide that, you know, you're reapplying because you simply, you were admitted to law school and you just didn't want to go to law school. I mean, I guess in some cases, it's not going to make that much of a difference. But if you weren't successful getting to your school, I would look at ways of, of trying to, uh, um, to polish your application. And I would write, uh, I, w- I would alter the personal, the personal statement to talk about maybe what you've been doing in the past year. That's really helpful. Thanks. Okay, if anyone else wants to ask their question out loud, I invite you to raise your hand. I'm going to read another question. What is the best way to advocate for my academic ability and my curiosity despite a GPA that falls below your median? Well, you know, again, the reason why that GPA falls below the median can have a lot of, um, there could be a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, and I also don't think an academic, you know, GPA is reflective of curiosity. One could be very curious in the world, and when it comes to, you know, academic performance, they may not, you know, uh, they may not be the strongest person. So if it's about curiosity, um, I, there are a lot of ways you can show, talk about curiosity. For one thing, if that's really what you're trying to present yourself as someone who's curious and your interest in law school is kind of an extension of your curiosity, you'd wonder where I thought about that in your personal statement. I think if you can demonstrate, you know, what makes you curious, for example, listing hobbies that, you know, that, you know, you have an interest in insects and you do you know, something like that, I guess there are other ways you can kind of bring that across. But I think maybe the question is how can, what are the ways in which you can show that you have the academic potential to be successful in the law school? Um, if your GPA is not, uh, is not the meeting. Well, I think of course doing well in the LSAT helps. Um, if you happen to be out of school for a while, I will tell you, I will not look at your GPA as much as I would for someone who just graduated from law school. So, uh, some might just buy your time, go out and do things in the world professionally, um, and decide to apply, you know, you know, down the road when you actually think you might have enough of a professional, um, you know, resume to support, you know, other things we're looking for in the application, for example, employability. Um, having recommenders talk about your ability in the classroom, if they can actually talk about the fact that your numbers do not really reflect your grade or that your grade should have been high, I mean, they can be helpful as well. Um, if, for example, your core, your GPA is reflective of a very rigorous course of study, sometimes it's also helpful that the recommenders fail. You say that. Some schools are notorious for not having uh, grade inflation. And it's important for us to know that. We can't, we don't know that you know, about every school. So sometimes it's, sometimes it's helpful for students to be able to portray or have at least the recommenders portray some contact with their academic performance. Um, but if anything, I think the point is, if you don't think your numbers are reflective of your true potential, you may, and there's some specific things that are not captured in those numbers or somewhere else in the application, that might be where an addendum might be uh, required. Thanks so much. Um, I'm going to call on Kara Bennett. So Kara, you can ask your question. 
You mentioned the intellectual property program at MAR, but in the context of the sciences, um, are there any opportunities for students interested in softer IP law, like copyright and trademark? Yes, absolutely. In fact, one thing about the IP program, which is uh, um, it's nationally ranked, it's 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 pretty it's pretty well known, is that it is anchored or it's fueled by the Center for Intellectual Property Research, and in the center, uh, there is a clinic where students can actually represent clients in front of the USPTO. So you're talking about students who are looking, who are working with people who are looking to get patents, but you're talking also about copyright and trademark. So yes, we cover the gambit. I will just say that I probably led into the um, uh, leading. I led into the whole idea of IP to the sciences because of a particular interest that our faculty have in having more you know, students from the hard sciences uh, come into the program. Uh, they tend to be harder to find than the students who are interested in copyright and trademark. But by all means, yes, we do cover the whole gambit, including trademark and copyright. Great, thank you. You're more than welcome. I'm going to read another question. I am a non-traditional student who has worked full-time throughout my bachelor's degree and will be 29 when applying to law school. I have a 145 LSAT score and a 3.6 GPA and a lot of volunteer work. I am going to retake the LSAT. However, do you think my work experience will stand out in the application process? Additionally, if I did not retake the LSAT, how do you think my chances would be currently? Um, I, I'm assuming in, in relation to Maurer, uh, because I do think with those scores, just on the surface of that, you know, there are law schools out there who would admit uh, this applicant. Um, I think those scores, excuse me, would make it a little more challenging uh, for students to get into Maurer. But if you look at the range of LSATs of the incoming student body, we've had we've had many students with LSATs in the mid 140s. Um, usually because there was something else very compelling about the personal statement. Let me give an example. With those scores, let's say that resume included that you started your own business um, and you've done incredibly well and, and, and it's gone on and you sold that business in the evening and you became a really highly respected member of the professional community. And I'm looking at that resume. That, that can really make it stand out. Like this person is going to do great things. And Given the fact that that uh, GPA is from 10 years ago, I'm going to be saying, wow, this person, I think those, that GPA is really not reflective of, of, of that word, a person's true potential. And again, as I mentioned earlier, employability is something we're looking at. And LSAT and GPA is not going to tell us that. Um, we're going to look more closely at that resume. So that will um, not, it, it doesn't create this blinding halo, but there's a bit of a halo like it's created by that resume. It's like, oh my gosh, look what this person's done. Um, now, in, let's say but that resume isn't that strong. Let's say it's kind of it's middle of the road. And the person scored a 146. The question was whether or not the student should take the LSAT again. And I say, I guess maybe the legal responses, I guess it all depends. Um, the question I would ask the student is like, well, first of all, no one would be happy with their score. Um, and if you're unhappy with your score in your 180, you shouldn't be applying to law school. Um, but just take it for it that no one's going to be happy with their score. The question then becomes for the student or the applicant, do you really felt like you did the best you could possibly do? Um, there might have been some circumstances that kind of threw you off in the day. An example was you didn't figure, you didn't know where this testing site was. Um, and you were, you were really hurried in the morning and you didn't really feel like you were in the mood. You felt like you were just trying to catch up the entire day. If you felt like, wow, I could, if it was a little more practice time or just trying to get the bugs out, maybe perhaps now I know what the exam's like and I, 
if I go into it now, having the experience of taking it before, I think I might do a little better. I say, go for it. Um, there are times where we get these really, really strong applicants and they take the LSAT and they bomb on the F bomb, but they, they're well below the 25th percentile. There are times we, the committee were like, I wish the student had taken it just one more time, you know, just to see it because, you know, had the person got four more points higher or something like this, this would be a, a non-issue. So sometimes in those tough cases, we are wondering, why did the student retake the exam? Is there such thing as taking the LSAT too many times? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, you know, statistically speaking, I mean, there's about 71% chance that you're going to score within three, three points of each side of your, of your score. Um, you know, it, it, what I see, um, there are things that stand off to me. For example, you take the one, you got a 168 and you take it again, you applying to hour. My first impression is like, you're not, <laughs> what are you trying to do here? Um, or if you see, for example, a student who takes the score and you see 161, 162, 161, 163, and you're like, okay, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard, but some, it, this, there's a feeling that after three times, uh, you know, within, within a sort of period of time, you know, we're not talking about over the course of five years. If you have four scores in five years, fine. But sometimes it does make us wonder what's going on there when a student has taken the score, taken Delsat more than three times and their scores are all very, you know, within a two or one or two point range. We won't sink them, but it just raised, it just makes us wonder um, what's going, you know, really, it's a little bit of overkill here. Okay. Um, Jarius asks, if you are a D1 athlete, should you put that in a diversity statement or your personal statement? Should you even tell the law school? Absolutely. Tell the law school. Absolutely. Uh, as going back to what I was mentioning about heart, you know, the things that make us excel as human beings that we look for in our students oftentimes are expressed, you know, in what student athletes do, track and so forth. Absolutely. Um, again, it tells us a lot about, you know, your grit, your determination, your discipline. These are things that are going to be very important for you as just a husband law school and then later on. I also like, as I mentioned about the military, I find that student athletes also carry themselves in a certain way that I think is um, appealing to lawyers, uh, I mean, uh, potential employers, as well as to, as to, um, as well as to uh, future clients. But lastly, it gives us more context. Um, there's a lot of time commitment involved in being a student athlete. There's time that you're not able to spend studying and so forth. This gives us a better idea about what are the commitments had on your time other than, you know, your classroom. So by all means, yes. Now, where do you put that? Definitely put it in your resume. Definitely put it in your resume. Uh, your references probably would know that you were a cross-country runner as well. Let them know that too uh, in a resume if they don't. Let that come out there. Um, if you write a personal statement, tell me about why you draw the connection between, you know, being a track athlete and my law school. What do you see uh, allowed for your success on, on, on the track to translate to what you think will be your success in law school? Draw some connection there. Um, a diversity statement, not necessarily. Typically, uh, you know, when we're looking for a diversity statement, we're looking, you know, more in terms of characteristics of people, in terms of their backgrounds and so forth. So typically, I don't find a, a, um, a diversity statement talking about how was it, you know, Usually, adverse statements, what, you know, what might be distinctive about them, unlike the rest of the class, something they're going to add to the class. Uh, 
um, they have no idea, you know, for the most part, we might have upper classes student athletes. So um, I, I would say that would be something in a personal statement or resume. And if you can get recommenders to talk about you being a well-known trap athlete on campus, I think that goes well. But by all means, include it. Do not, do not sell yourself short. Thanks, Greg. Grant asks, when applying to law schools, I've been told that the earlier the better. Is there a significant difference uh, when applying in early October compared to the coming months? And how does the chance of admittance change between an applicant you review in October, November, December, et cetera? Okay. Um, no, it doesn't make an absolute difference. If you have a bad application, you turn it in early, you're not going to get in. I care if you're the first person I'm reading. Um, understand, however, that um, when it comes to reading files, you know, we're going to be admitting students based upon the students we admitted from the previous year. That kind of tends to benchmark. But as we get through the, through the application cycle, we may notice that um, the, the applicant pool might be a little stronger um, than it had been in the past. And so we might level off and stop admitting students, maybe, you know, the same students, and start being a little more selective. That can be the case. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Sometimes we find out that the applicant pool is starting to go down, so we're going to have to admit people with scores and profiles that may have been waitlisted from the year before. So um, there's a lot that's going on there. But the timing of the application matters to the extent that, well, we're looking at the application with fresh eyes. That's one thing. So I think that you get kind of excited to start reading applications to begin the reading season. And I'll say by the end of the season, we just are ready to, you know, <laughs> you know, walk off, you know, take a long walk off a short pier. It's just, um, we get tired. And we also might then have heard the same thing over and over again. And familiarity breeds contempt. So you kind of like, eh, eh, eh. Um, But I always say you want to get your the best possible application turned in at the earliest time. That's what you really want to do. You do not want to get something in and not being your best possible case. Now, there's another reason why you'd want to get the application turned in, and that might be because of financial aid. Um, we may be able to offer only so much money to an applicant, you know, to applicants. And by some point, we just can't make offers anymore because we've expended, we've, you know, we've gone beyond our, our scholarship budget. So there's a purpose for financial aid, you know, uh, that you'd want to get an application turned in. But the important thing is always make sure that you're turning in the best possible application. Um, and again, you know, if you have a really good application, really strong application, you know, and there's still money to be, you know, price laid to be given. You'll still be admitted even pretty late in the game. Another anonymous attendee asks, uh, you mentioned that 70% of students come from out of state. I was wondering how you assess international applicants, specifically from Canada. Is that an advantage or a disadvantage? Well, given my last name, it's a definite advantage that they come from Canada. So, uh, <laughs> Now, um, you know, we actually about about um, over twelve percent of our incoming students are from our international students in our JD program. Um, we're starting to see more and more students uh, from other countries who are who are interested in getting in a JD. No longer an LLM for students who've got a law degree from other countries. Um, you know, we don't really look at them that much differently. Although in some cases, where for example. Uh, they live in countries where English is not the primary language, then, you know, we're going to be looking very closely at um, the TOEFL or any other language score. That would be very important for us. We find that student is, um, is one of the things, 
you know, we do worry about some students, especially from China, for example, they have very strong LSAT scores and may very strong grades, but their grasp of the English language is not very strong. And so that will be something we're going to look for. That tip, now, of course, is not going to be the case for someone from Canada. Um, we always have a good number of students who come to, to the law school from Canada, from great law schools like University of Toronto, McGill University. Um, these students are really kind of reviewed the same way because unlike the students from China, from Korea, English is their language. Uh, for the most part, English is their language, primary language um, spoken at home and, and in public. All right. We may have time for only one or two more questions. Sam asks, is it important for out-of-state applicants to explain their interest in going to law school in a different state, or is it more important to explain why you want to go to that specific school? Uh, you know, um, I would talk more about the school, um, you know, but, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, it's really hard to say I, I, because I, I've seen some really good applicants who have applied, for example, from California, and they are talking about, you know, you'd want to know why I'm applying to Indiana from California. And so they do talk about that. Uh, and it makes it very compelling. You are, it does make a scratch. Why Why is this person applying? Uh, maybe not so more if you're from Illinois, where a large number of our students come. So if it does seem to be like, wow, Lord, you might want to explain that. And there might be an incredibly compelling reason why you do that. But, you know, in some cases, you're applying from Illinois. Most of our students are coming from out of state or come from Illinois, Ohio. Knowing that and seeing that you're kind of, a, this is a well-being path, I wouldn't waste my breath telling me why Indiana, because I, I know that a lot of our students end up going back to Illinois or Ohio. Um, jobs. Okay, I think this is going to be our last question, and it's a twofer. You noted earlier that you look for why an applicant wants to go to law school and your law school, but what types of reasons are red flags uh, for saying that they want to go to your law school? Also, does relevant work experience on a resume speak for itself, or should I expand on it? No. Um, well, okay, red flags. Well, I think some actually one of the questions you had asked me earlier, or at least one of the prompted questions, like where were common mistakes, um, sometimes students put down what they liked about my law school, but it's factually incorrect. You know, they may reference a center or clinic that we don't have. Uh, and I've seen that. It's a little awkward. Um, so <laughs> be careful about how you present yourself there. Um, why you go to law school? I, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't spend too much time talking about why Indiana law. The fact that you're applying assumes that you're interested. Now, if you can tie some very specific thing about the law school that turns you on, and, and tying it to something you're doing or you have done, then you're making a very compelling statement. You're not just trying to, you know, make us feel good about being at a great law school. Um, and sometimes that's what happens. Students just praise the law school. They, and, and they're telling us all about us, things that we already know, but they're not telling us anything about them. Remember, this is a personal statement, and that needs to be, the emphasis has to be on the personal. Um, but tying it to something about the school, I think, when we think about who really wants to be at the law school, whether this person would be a, uh, you know, someone's going to put wind in the sails of those around them, that can be, can, that can be compelling. Um, it also can be pretty drab. I mean, I've seen, again, my own writing and personal statements. I'm like, this person just cut and paste my website. So I'm not sure if I answered both questions. There was, um, the, the last one is, do I have to expand on relevant work experience or can I just let it speak for itself? Yeah. Um, I think it, it could be helpful. 
Um, you know, here's the thing. I mean, we can, if you don't want to write about your experience at a law firm and let's say you've been working at a law firm for three summers, you know, I don't think you have to write about, you know, the, that you don't have to. I've, I've seen very strong applications from people who don't expand that at all. But I've also seen cases where students talk about their experiences in these legal firms or these law firms um, being the reason what, you know, part of the reasons why they end up going to law school. So you don't have to. But I've seen where it's been done very successfully. Okay. Well, it's 10 o'clock, so unfortunately it's time to go. 10 o'clock for us, 9 o'clock <laughs> for you. Um, That's right. So, Dean Canada, I just want to thank you so much. This was this is really great. I mean, you, I can see from the chat room that you got a lot of people interested in Mauer. It sounds like a great place to go. And you were just so candid and uh, generous with your time and informative. So thank you again for coming. And I also want to thank all of the panelists who came out tonight and listened to us. Yeah. Well, David, thank you very much. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you very much. I wish you all very much uh, the very best. And uh, if there's anything else you can do, let me know. Okay. Thanks, Dean Canada. Have a good night. Hello, it's David again. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode useful, please give us a rating on iTunes or Google Play. If you're looking for more information about law school admissions, head on over to sevensage.com admissions.